0: And it's through that type of evidence-based research that we can say, okay, you should probably, if you're going to bias, you should probably get the vaccine or you should probably not. Hello, everyone.
1: I'm Dr. Jim Hoven, your host of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast, and I want to welcome you back. This is going to be a really fun edition today because I'm bringing back the head of our medical sciences division, Dr. Don Cooper, and he's done several episodes with us now. And I always look forward to these because the way that his mind works, the things he's working on, the things we're working on, the law firm in the med sciences division are exciting, exciting, cutting edge stuff. So I can't wait for you to hear what he's been working on, what he's found, what we're doing, and how it may affect not only you today, but you in the future. So today um, we are proud to have Don here and he's gonna share all about what what we're gonna be talking about today is genetics. And specifically, if you're looking at genetics, to see if you might be susceptible to certain conditions, diseases, or um, medical processes in the future. Maybe what can you do? Or if you've had a reaction, let's say to a vaccine or something like that, could you have been predisposed to that because of your genetic makeup? So that's all in the podcast today. So uh, you're going to want to listen to this. And it, you're gonna be so intrigued, you're gonna to wanna to share it with someone. So let's start right away today with my guest, the one and only Dr. Don Cooper. Dr. Don, welcome to the show. Thanks,
0: thanks for having
1: me. Always great to have you back, yeah. man. Well, I, I love, I mean, we were talking before we started recording and I'm intrigued every time you and I sit down face to face and I yeah. mean, we get a chance to talk and connect because we both work here at Ramos Law, but just every time the things that you're working on blow my mind. Can you just give our audience just a little bit, a, a taste and a background of what we're gonna be diving into today?
0: Well, today I think we're gonna talk about um, personalized medicine and lifestyle medicine. We're gonna talk about um, some new developments in genomics technology. Um, And one of specifically is the polygenic risk score and how how we can use that in order to assess an individual's risk for developing certain pathological conditions. Um, Here at the law firm, I've been very focused over the last year looking at vaccine injuries. And we've had several people uh, several clients who have really devastating um, injuries in response to the vaccinations. And these are, include strokes and um, blood clotting and are we talking about dementia? different kinds
1: of vaccinations? Or are you talking about specifically just the COVID vaccination? When you say that these reactions, what? Well, are you it
0: spans it spans any type of hyperimmune activation, and that typically comes from a vaccine. But we've seen it with influenza. We've seen it with mainly COVID because that's what's. I mean, there've been I don't know how many a billion doses of of COVID over the past two years. So we tend to see a lot more of the COVID. Uh, vaccine doses, and it's a new technology, so it's it's capable of activating the immune system in a in a more powerful way. So we're starting to see that that um, we were interested in whether or not there could be some predictive factors is why we wanted to answer the question why some people may have a devastating, a serious adverse reaction to a vaccine, and why others simply don't. And so we thought, well, maybe it's the um, their underlying genetics that might convey some type of vulnerability. And so now we're starting to get that data back.
1: Was that the original question that got you on this path, Don? I know that when we first started Med Sciences, we had this kind of triple head thing of what we were gonna do. There were gonna be these three kind of divisions. Mm -hmm. And then as time has gone on, I mean, with your background, PhD, neuroscience, all these kinds of things, you have such a varied, um, already deep history and deep knowledge of these kind of things. But I'm interested on what took you to the question of the genomics behind all this, the genetic factors that led to implications. Where did that question even pop in your mind originally or, or was that mm-hmm. something that you saw somewhere else? Well, that's a
0: good question because I think it's really you know through talking with with Dr. Ramos and, and having that, that uh, background of both the law side and the medicine side. And um, if you think about what's it going to take to if you're if you have clients that um, were injured by a vaccine and you have to take that to the U.S. Court of Federal Claims and you're going to put file a petition um, on behalf of your client saying that they were injured by a vaccine. Well, the court's going to say, well, you're going to have to provide a biological theory of causation. So how do we do that? We've got a new vaccine. We know nothing about it. We have no evidence to support, you know, but we do see that people are, are two days after they get a vaccine, they have a stroke. So we know that at least paired in time, there's there's pretty compelling data that's that suggests that the vaccine is causing something. But the court is still going to say, well, you're going to have to prove it. So when I started on this, it's it's Um, something that I said well if we're gonna prove this then what's the most powerful technology we can use right now and my background in genomics um, just led me to well we'll just sequence them we'll do whole genome sequencing of everybody who has uh, an adverse reaction we will get their entire sequence and then we'll just look for for gene variants and and we'll be able to explain why somebody had a stroke why somebody had a blood clot um, why somebody had cognitive decline by looking at the vulnerability genes and combined with their immune system which genes are responsive to immune activation and then we can offer that to the court so we could submit to the court uh, all the genetic information and say this person had a vulnerability and that's that explains why this person versus anybody else um, had a, had an injury
1: and I think it's important to note that um, you are not a quote-unquote anti-vaxxer. You're not coming at this from trying to rid the world of all vaccines and think that they're all horrible. You're coming at this from the science perspective of saying, wait a minute, I see a trend here and I got to investigate this. I got I to gotta see it through. And you, you and I have talked about this many times. And I think it's interesting where your point, I think, is really valid of you know, because I was like, man, the number of injuries, it's super scary to me, and it led me to my philosophy and my thought process, and you made a great counterpoint saying, well, on the other side, if you're giving a billion doses of anything, more people are gonna be responsive in a negative way yeah. than if the sample size were smaller. Yeah. So as you see that now, looking at it now, do you think, and, and again, we're just playing in perspectives here, and, you know, yeah. and maybe um, in projections, But do you think we should have, not we, but those people that were creating the vaccine and it was all in a rush in order to try to help the population from their point of view, should they have thought about genetic testing and checking that? Or is it just just such a rare thread of thought of like, no, we never did that for anything else. Why would we do that for this? Because what I'm wondering then, the reason I ask is, does that make someone... Negligent if they say, Well, if they had this and this and this group of genes, then they're going to be at risk. And
0: holy crap, you know, we don't want to go there. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think you have to look at what the standard is, and, and I don't think you can hold um, It's a complicated question because, yeah. as far as the genetic side, should they have done the genetic testing? Well, just think about where genetics has gone, where how, how far it's come. And, and what, what knowledge should they be responsible for, for applying this technology? And I mean, we're doing, this is, we have the first clinical trial, first clinical study to actually look at genome sequencing and vaccine adverse effects. I mean, we have the first study. So it's not like there is a pool of information that they could have said, uh, Pfizer could have said, or Moderna, it could have said, you know, why don't we do genetic testing Um, over the past Let's see. Over the past uh, 20 years, let's see. So, with whole genome sequencing, in, t- in 2020, t- 20, 2003 was the first human genome sequence. It was three billion dollars. Over that time three period, three billion dollars. Three billion dollars to do the first genome, <laughs> and the cost uh, now in 2023, the cost has dropped 10 million fold. So you can get it for you know 200, 100 to 200 dollars right now. And so I, I. You know, I like to think of this as an analogy. If you bought a five hundred thousand dollar Lamborghini in 2003, you could buy that same brand new Lamborghini today for for a nickel. Wow. That's that's how the the cost has dropped over just the past 20 years. And so if you want to know, well, you sequence eight billion base pairs. Um, And you're looking for some 83 million uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms that convey some type of risk towards any condition then that's a lot of data to go through and so how many people you had one person in, in 2003 and now we have more we have you know every day we have more studies but they, there simply isn't the information especially for vaccine injury because there's that's that's very difficult to get that population if there's one in 10,000, 1 in 30,000 um, who has an adverse reaction you, that's not a large pool for researchers to to go after, and that's something that we have access to, and it's kind of a unique resource that we have here. Because who do they call when they have an injury? I call a law firm who's qualified and, and registered with the U.S. Court of Federal Claims to pursue, to, for the Vaccine Court, and and Dr. Ramos is is um, a member of the bar there, and so we can we can uh, take those cases and petition, and so we have this this population, a very enriched population that that we can study, and so we're finding. You know the, the things that we're finding right now is it's we're, we're identifying genes that um, that are associated with the different types of, of blood clotting, stroke, et cetera. So it's very exciting that we can actually see now that there is this underlying um, genetic risk that we believe is responsible for why some people have a vaccine injury and others don't. That's really powerful. I, I wanna
1: go back to one definition and it's, will you just kind of explain to the audience what it means when someone has one of these genetic variants, and I think you called it a a single nucleotide something something polymorphism, something, polymorphism, SNP, yeah, a SNP. Will you will you describe because you talked about all these gene pairs that are out there? Yeah. So when when someone is thinking, well, I wonder what my system looks like, yeah. describe how the process works. So you got all these things paired up, and they're doing their deal, mm-hmm. and then one of them doesn't look like the rest of them, which makes mm-hmm. it this this amorphic creature that leaves it susceptible. Can you just kind of yeah. go through that? I think that's a really good
0: foundation of what people sure, can see. Sure. So, I mean, if we, if we break it down to, um, what we've known in genetics for a long time, we've known that, uh, essentially the human genome codes for about 20,000 genes. And that means that that's about 20,000 proteins. So everything that we are is ba- basically 20,000 proteins. So how do you go from 8 billion pairs, base pairs for DNA, that codes for only 20,000 genes and 20,000 proteins? That means that um, usually a gene is somewhere around the order of, of um, well, 1,000 base pairs. So there's a huge amount of this, this. Think about the genome as a ball of spaghetti. But only a small fraction of that, like maybe 2%, is actually coding for, for proteins. The rest of it is all—it's um, called introns. It's not actually coding, but it's—it's it's involved with uh, determining how efficiently these genes are are expressed or translated. So it's—it's it's how much access in this big ball of spaghetti or ball of yarn that how how much access. The, the protein machinery for transcribing it gets to in order to express these genes. So it's about efficiency. And these little SNPs are mutations that have occurred over the past, let's say, 100 to 200,000 years that we've been around on this planet. Over that time, there are little mutations that creep into the genome. And they there's, some of them are fairly common. We have about 5 million a fairly common uh, SNPs, And so when you go to places like 23andMe, you've heard of 23andMe yes. and some of these ancestry things. So you can use those SNPs in order to track your lineage Did you come out of, you know, European history or an African history or Asian. Um, you can you can trace your ancestry all the way back based on these these SNPs. And so it's just over time we've accumulated these things. And most of the time, these are inert and they don't have any consequences. Sometimes, though, if you, com- if you combine them, and this is, this is the major advancement that's occurred with, with the polygenic risk score recently, is, is um, prior to whole genome sequencing, we knew that, that you know the focus was on, well, if you have a, a particular SNP, if you have like a SNP that gives you the BRCA, a gene variant that gives you the BRCA, yeah mutation for breast cancer. This is the one where um, Angelina Jolie had breast cancer. She has the BRCA variant. That means she has an 85% chance of 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 getting breast cancer that could be fatal. And so she just elected to have a double mastectomy. And there are others like the APOE4 variant for Alzheimer's, where you have a much greater uh, incidence of a much higher incidence of developing Alzheimer's if you have this double mutation those are single variants those are called pathogenic variants and those are very very rare that one variant can cause that that pathology and that's but that's all that we had up until a few years ago where we started looking at um, multiple genes where we can start looking at millions of these SNPs together and putting them into uh, an algorithm where we could say, well, what's your additive risk of all of these, of a thousand different genes towards heart disease. And we'll just add up the incremental risk. So each, each one may add 1% risk. Well, now we see that if, we, if you look at all of your particular profile, we can say that you have a you know, 25% chance of developing heart disease. So that's really the advancement that's occurred really over the last, let's say five years.
1: That's incredible. And so is it is it commonly used now um, as a we'll call it a pre-diagnostic tool or is it still something that's really, really in the minority who gets these kind of tests? Is that something that you and I can and should just go get so that we know what to expect or are doctors, um, you know, PCP specifically saying, <laughs> no, let's you know, we're going to manage
0: differently for now. Well, like I said, you know, in 2003, it was three billion in 2007, it was ten million dollars to get to sequence so that wasn't that long ago no so you know maybe five years ago it was five thousand so the problem is is that medical schools haven't been able to keep up with teaching doctors you know what to do with this information so you don't if you don't have the doctors that are trained in understanding polygenic risk they're they're their training is more in clinical genomics where they're looking at specific pathological gene variants. So if you, if you have a clotting disorder, they'll look at a couple different genes or they'll look at proteins and they'll do some in vitro assay to look at very specific markers. So right now I would say that it's, it's not used at all in a clinical setting. It hasn't trickled its way into payers and insurers where they know what to do with it. Um, But I think that in general, we're moving, you know, healthcare, I think, is moving from what's been a treatment centered um, approach where there's been less of a focus on diagnostics um, in, in favor of, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if we know why it is. If the treatment's the same, let's just treat them. That's kind of the attitude. And so that, there, there's some cost savings there, but it doesn't really help you if you want to know more about why this particular person had this particular, you know, Pathology, mm-hmm. and so I think now with this development of of personalized medicine, where we can start looking at um, uh, individual. Uh, idiosyncrasies we can look at their traits we can see their genome we can say well based on your genetic profile we recommend that you take this type of blood pressure medication you take a diuretic versus you know an ace inhibitor or some of these others Uh, we can look at how they might respond to an antidepressant drug versus you know different types of antidepressant drugs so i think that the future we're going to start seeing more of a personalized medicine where medicine's going to go more to a risk-based um, approach where they're going to start, I mean, I envision a day not too far in the future where where people once they have their you know have their baby, they come home with their baby, they, they come home with the baby and they come home with a link to that baby's whole genome sequence and all of the risk factors that they know of at that time of, you know, what that baby has in store for it for its life. Yes, and then parents can adjust their, you know, the, 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 they can make lifestyle sort of medicine or lifestyle choices in order to, to work in concert with their, you know, with their, uh, child's, you know, predispositions. Yeah. I think that's going to be the, the future. It's just, I think it's taken a while for, it's going to take a while for, you know, medical schools and insurers to, to kind of catch up with that.
1: And right now you say that the test could be under a couple hundred dollars. Yep. Yeah. And so do people get that at a... Uh, how, where, do they, where do you go to get a test like Well, right this?
0: now we use Nebula Genomics. So, they, so how do they do it?
1: Is it through blood? you take a blood
0: draw? No you, take a... no, you don't even need to do that. Uh, they send you a kit and they do a cheek swab, mm-hmm. or you do a cheek swab at home. So then you put it into the solution and then you mail it back. And about 12 weeks later, uh, you have a report. They do a, a 30, 30 times coverage, which means they go over it and they sequence it 30 times. Um, to make sure that, that any errors, you know that, that you have a decreased chance of errors. Um, and so And then once you have that, they have a whole um, uh, bank of uh, reports for health reports for cardiovascular risk or Alzheimer's or uh, left-handedness, you know all sorts of uh, quirky, Things, but also very, you know, important things that, that might, uh, influence your, you know, your, your lifestyle choices. Yeah.
1: I was blown away by this. The first time I heard about this was actually in the weight loss arena where mm-hmm. a friend of mine was using a genetic test mm-hmm. to find out what diet is best for that person to be as lean as possible and what exercise type. And I was, I yeah. was, I was reticent. I'm like, really? Mm. It could, could that be like some people, you know, should do high intensity interval training versus some steady state cardio versus yeah, right. this. And I was like, uh, I wonder what the percentages are of these and what that is. And then should this person have more carbs, this person have more protein. And so that was the first I had heard and I was intrigued, but I wasn't necessarily convinced. Mm-hmm. And now what you're sharing with us is taking it to a whole nother level of, you know what predispositions might you have towards uh, future events. But I wanna, I wanna come back to what you've found in uh, looking at what the gene expressions are on the people, the people, the clients of ours that you've worked with, when it comes to some of the symptoms that these people found from hyperimmune response caused by a vaccine, and the
0: correlation that you found in looking at this data from their genes. Right. Um, well, so we've we've seen the extremes when people call a law firm and they they need help. Um, they have to satisfy. A, you know, some criteria that the court of federal claims, this is the vaccine court, they require. And so they had to have had um, a serious injury with and reported it, sought medical care, either through ER or going to, uh, contacting their doctor within 30 days of getting the vaccine. So they have to cross that hurdle. And then they have to, it has to be serious enough to where it lasts, their their symptoms from this last for at least six months. And so they have to go that, that period of time, um, before they'll be considered. And it has to have a significant impact on their, their quality of life. So they have to pass all of that, that criteria. And so when, once that happens, then they call us. And, um, and then under certain circumstances, we'll look o- over their medical rec- records and, um, and we can determine whether or not they would be a good candidate for gene sequencing. And when we look at that, we see um, the ones that we've been focusing on are individuals who've had a stroke so these are individuals who had the vaccine. And they, they could be, um, you know, teenagers, healthy teenagers had the vaccine. A couple days later, after after the vaccine, it's a stroke. So uh, we've sequenced uh, those individuals, individuals that are in their 40s who've had a stroke, debilitating strokes, um, other clotting disorders, vascular disorders. And what we're seeing is that these individuals, when we do their sequencing, we're finding that they are in the hundredth percentile for risk, for polygenic risks for things like clotting.
1: Wow, and, and was, it the, was it the elements within the vaccine, the, the things, the, the recipe of the vaccine that caused the hyperimmune response that caused that particular symptom, or can we tell? Or was it the fact that the hyperimmune response was what caused the symptom? Does that make sense? That question.
0: Well, I mean, I'll just I'll just stick stick to the data. What we what we know. What yeah. we know is that somebody got a vaccine. They ha, they are the person who got the vaccine is in the hundredth percentile risk for developing a blood clot. Or because stroke. of because of their set of genes. Okay, so not so we know this based of, on on let's say a Nature Genetics study looks at five hundred thousand uh, Europeans and they look at the ones that that go on to have some kind of uh, uh, thromboembolism or clot and then go on to have a stroke and then they say okay based on that how many of them can we tell from a pattern of their you know however many genes they sequenced or they looked at um which which are the highest risk genes and they come up with say 500 right and then say okay well what are the chances that you any given person, you would have all 500 of those. That's pretty rare, right? So when you're in the 100th percentile, for the cases of our, of our clients where we've seen this multiple, multiple times, that's how we know that this is real, is they, of the pool, let's say of just of Nebula, they've done 5,000 genomes, and they say, okay, you submit your, your DNA to it. Where are you in this? And when we look at the ones who have had strokes, they're in the hundredth percentile. That means they're in the top 50 people of 5,000. That's the top 1%. Wow. And so it's, um, it's, it's um, statistically, it's astronomically, uh, the the odds are astronomical that you would have this by chance. Yeah. So it's billions, one in billions that, that uh, somebody would have that we would find, let's say we've, we've sequenced you know 50 people and we find out those 50 people we've got 17 gene variants that are in all of them and they're all risk so it's, it's the, the odds of that happening through chance are astronomical so now that we have we have 17 genes right now um, we're in an opportunity right now to now convert that to the next phase we want to now say can we take these 17 variants and can we make a chip can we make some kind of assay to where you don't have to necessarily be sequenced, but we can you can take this at home test and then and then determine whether or not you might be at risk for a vaccine because we still have to people stuff to make a decision as to, as to vaccinate their, themselves or their kids. We don't know what new variants are going to come along in the next year for covid or any other, you know, um, you know, pandemic or virus that might come along. And so we have to make this decision. Am I going to get the next great latest greatest booster? or not Mm -hmm. and so if we happen to have if we have 17 genes that can tell you if you're part of that if you have all 17 of those probably want to rethink whether or not getting the vaccine is going to be the best alternative to what happens what are your risk factors for actually getting you know say covid because sometimes you there are there are gene variants where people are protected against covid and we we know those genes too so we can look for both whether someone is is less likely to have a serious effect to covid and we can see which ones are more likely to have an adverse reaction to the vaccine and it's through that type of evidence-based research that we can say okay you should probably if you're going to bias you should probably get the vaccine or you should probably not that makes sense now kind of to circle back to my question is the thing
1: that so those people with the 17 they're the one percent or the hundredth percentile they were walking around fine before getting the vaccine they still had all these variants right like it was it was what it was that's what they're given but they were okay so they yeah. get the stimulus that yeah. created this was the vaccine was it was it because of what was in that vaccine versus another one again was it the recipe of items that created the immune the immunologic inflammatory response that led to the symptoms or or was it just the fact that the inflammation went so high that's what triggered the symptoms, or do
0: we know? Oh Those are those are all good hypotheses. I mean, we don't know. Okay. Now, What we know is that if you got an in- injection, you had an event, and you happened to be in your, some risk. And this so was that, your genes. So you can fill in the, 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 the blanks, yes. you know, with whatever... You know, hypothesis you want, but you still have to test that. So, so you know, I think of it like this. I think if, if you look at somebody who has a high risk for developing, say, a, a deep vein thrombosis, which is a clot in the, in the legs, you look at all of the different factors that might lead to somebody having uh, a clot that might be, um, that might turn into a pulmonary embolism or something like that. Well, you look at women over the age of 35 who are on oral contraceptives. That's an increased six-fold increase in your risk of developing a deep vein thrombosis. Add to that obesity. Let's say that's a three times increase. Add to that immobility. So they go on a long flight across, you know, from here to Europe for 13 hours. That increases it another twofold. Let's say that they're on cancer therapy. So they're taking some cancer, th- anti-cancer therapeutic drugs, and that increases their risk another tenfold. So all those types of things, and you could go, let's say they're a smoker, that increases. So you look at, those are five things that I just listed that, that give you fold increases in your risk. Mm-hmm. Well, what is it about each one of those things that causes that increased risk when that person ends up having a, 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 a deep vein thrombosis? All those things work together what we think is that well, this is this is just our hypothesis but we think that it's similar to any any number of those like ca- let's say cancer therapy if you're if you get a vaccine that's activating your immune system you know that it's activating your immune system because most people who get the vaccine at least let's say the covid vaccine most people who get that vaccine within the first 2 3 days they have uh, feelings of flu-like symptoms. They have, you know, they don't feel well. They have muscle aches. They've got headache. Um, they've get a little bit of a fever. Those are all common, and that's just a symptom of your immune system functioning. Um, in some people, it works. We we're, we hypothesize that it's in some people there that it's working a little bit too effectively. And okay. it's, it's, it's called hyperimmune um, activation. And we think that there is this, this relationship between immune activated genes. These are genes that are turned on by immune system activation. We think that because of, and, and if, if we're to say, if it turns out that these mRNA-based vaccines are more effective at turning on your immune system than live virus, um, then that would, that would help explain why there appears to be more people who are responding with adverse reactions to the mRNA-based vaccines. And that kind of comes back to your initial question is, sh- what should they have known? What should, should, you know, the CDC and FDA and Pfizer, what, what responsibility did they have under the conditions of the pandemic in order to do further testing before releasing this new gene therapy in the mRNA vaccine? Right. So yeah. and I think that that's a very good that's a very good question. And it kind of it, un, it uncovered a kind of vulnerability that we have um, in in our society that um, you can almost do anything under the conditions of of a pandemic um, yeah. and you suspend in many ways. We suspended all scientific process um, in order to to pursue whatever was expedient. And so they all they all based, they all chose the spike protein to to make their vaccines off of you know for both Moderna and Pfizer use the spike protein they they had other choices they could have used but that was what was there, and so a good scientific process would have been well it would have been looking at well what's the history that we have with live viruses and what's our total history of vaccination and and um, can we plug it into that that system versus do we need to jump to a new platform. And if we do jump to a new platform, what are the risks going to be and how many people do we actually have to get clinical data from in order to determine if it's safe and is is 30,000 enough, you know, you're giving it right giving out 350 million doses is that was is are you going to tolerate, you know, one in 30,000 and uh, and are, are they all healthy. Volunteers that you're giving it to. What what about people who are on cancer therapy and who are you know who have who have diabetes and who are obese and are, is there an additive risk when you're giving them this new gene platform? So I think there are a lot of questions that, in retrospect, we probably should should uh, reevaluate our, our approach. Mm,
1: that's a great point. I mean, that just sound logic. And in a time of world panic, I mean decisions get made and things get done, but hopefully we learn from that and can move on because what I love what you've said so far, I mean, I love everything that you've said, but one of the things that really stuck to me is this term, um, this personalized and precision medicine that mm-hmm. we're moving into. And so I want you to discuss a little bit about that, Dr. Don, about um, where we can start using now. And you you alluded to it briefly with the mom bringing the baby home, you know, with, with mm-hmm. this kind of thing, but um, I, I just see the potential in Knowing what my gene sequence looks like, knowing where my potential vulnerabilities are, and then how we can use that through lifestyle choices, as you mentioned, yeah. and, and through um, any number of things. But right. talk, speak to give me the Star Trek version of what's possible now, as you see it right now. Like, what could we could we go to the teleprompter room or the portation room? Like they could <laughs> in Star Trek. You know, what do
0: you see from this therapy in the future for us? Boy, you know, it's, what comes to mind first is is my son. Channing. He's 16. He's in track and field and he just started, um, sprinting. It turns out that he's good at the hundred meters. And, um, so he wanted to get sequenced. So he sequenced him and he's like, he wants to know if he has the same gene variant that Usain Bolt has.
1: So there is, it turns
0: out that there is a gene variant. There's, there's a couple different genes that are, that are involved with sprint and sprinting and power. For muscle, it's, it's an actin, it's a ACNT3 gene, and about twenty percent of of Caucasians have a stop uh, codon mutation in it, where it doesn't it doesn't express this, and so if they don't express that, then they don't have this sprint power. So he wanted to know that, and that's just uh, that's just something that um, I think is kind of a fun thing that we that you know it's if you look on the horizon of you know what's the future. Um, if your kids are interested in, in, you know, knowing whether or not they're going to be good athletes or something like that, that's a, it's something you could give them a profile and they can say, yeah, you know, the likelihood is you'd probably, you'd probably be a good thrower. You'd probably be a good, you know, sprinter, or maybe you'd be a better endurance athlete. And so this, this could actually influence whether or not, you know, he decides to run the 400, which I wouldn't wish that upon anyone, (laughs) um, versus the hundred meter, right. Or the mile. And so I think that these are the kind of interesting things that our kids are going to have access to that that, you know, I wish we had when, you know, growing up, we would decide, you know, what we're going to be better at versus not. Yeah. And I think that extends to a lot of different things. That's just something that's just kind of a lifestyle thing, but also for for precision medicine. Um, you're, you can just imagine the, the types of, of, of therapies, um, of prevention of are you going to be more susceptible to or more responsive to a Mediterranean diet or this type of diet. It's really I think that what we're going to see in the future is we're going to see um, consumers actually going to company paying for this as an as an add on to insurance, going to companies and saying, you know what, I want to sit down with a doctor. Um, and talk about my lifestyle, my environmental factors, what's going on in my life, um, socioeconomic sort of factors, um, and, uh, and just your, and your genetics, and then going through that with a review and saying, okay, based on this, here's a diet, here's an exercise regimen, you know, here's a mental health thing, here's, here's what we can do with in terms of your, your um, socialization, your friends, things like that all coming together in order to optimize optimize health and i, I kind of see that's hopefully what the future is
1: man i love that
0: so much and i think um
1: you talked about it already in a different way when you talked about optimizing the future i could see where by knowing some of this information you, it would kind of be a double-edged sword right like or if let's say your son wanted to be this the next usain bolt and he's got and he's doing good for his age. And then if he sees that and doesn't confirm that he has the great sprinter's gene, then what could it discourage him from chasing his dreams? And that, So that there's maybe the other side of that. But I think for the most part, imagine if it said that, you know, you have a really high predisposition to, to not living a long time if you don't do these things to cancer or to, you know, some of these things you've mentioned. Yeah. It could be a great wake-up call to say, I need to do something now yeah and you can't um once you have these no matter what you do you're not going to alter them like if you went from we'll call it not clean living to total clean living over a period of years would you show any change in that or is that all an epigenetics
0: thing well you know if you look at the statistics for lifestyle sort of medicine you've got um what is it 40 percent of all cancer deaths could be prevented through lifestyle Modifications. You've got about maybe eighty uh, percent can be of cardiovascular, could be prevented through lifestyle, and maybe ninety percent for diabetes. So we we already know that if you can identify early on somebody who has cardiovascular diabetes, you know these types of of risks, um, we know that lifestyle will get you a it'll get you a long way Mm -hmm. by doing those things. So there's, there's definitely, you know, what I say to, to Channing is that, you know, if, if he has that, then, then it's kind of like, it goes both ways. If he doesn't have it, well, you got to work harder. Yep. But if you do have it, you got to work harder because (laughs) you want to maximize that. Why would you sit on something so valuable? You've, you've, you've been blessed with something that's, that's, you know, sets you apart from everybody else and you're just going to sit, sit, sit on the couch and not Mm -hmm. do anything, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that, that it can go both ways, but I, think it's important to understand that uh, just because you have these variants you know this polygenic risk score that's going to explain some fraction of your risk but it can you you'd mentioned epigenetics and that's that's something that that's a that's something that you get from from um, mainly environment, your diet, and uh, you know things that turn on and turn off genes. These are things that you have the capability of of changing. Yeah, so there is no influence. You have a huge influence, and and you can change these things. You can do therapies. You can do all sorts of things that that can uh, directly you know offset any sort of risk that you have. It's just you, important to know that what your risks are. I think. Yeah. Uh,
1: are there ethical considerations that we need to? To consider as we look into yeah. this into the future, and if so, what would you see some of the potential ethical considerations being?
0: Well, I think the ethical considerations would be uh, this information getting into the hands of in, of of insurance companies that would use this information in a way to deny you uh, life insurance, for example. Ooh, yeah. So if we if we knew that if they knew that you had a polygenic risk score of uh, in the hundredth percentile for Um, Heart disease, you know, what are the chances you're going to get the same premium that somebody else who has, you know, in the in the one in this, you know, one percentile. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that because of the um, there was a um, a genetics um, act. uh, There's a law that was passed a couple decades ago that covered health insurance, but I don't think it covers life insurance. And so I still think there are some gaps in and how we deal with this information. And, and, and it's usually policies and things like that. They don't keep up with the technology. So it is possible that you could have, you could know a lot of information about yourself that, that the insurance companies would want to know. And if they found out about it, they could use that to your detriment. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important that Um, anytime you share that information, I just would not share that information. You know, there's, there's a HIPAA issue. And and when people know anything about you from your genetics, then they can use that in a way that, uh, I think we've, we haven't really seen all the different ways, but that's just one example. Yeah. So it's important to know that you're dealing with, if you're going to get your gene sequenced, um, that, you know, they have a policy in place. If you're going to participate in a research study, you know, we give informed consent To everyone showing that we're not gonna we're not gonna um, uh, share their data with anyone we're not gonna even we won't share it with the court we'll redact their information to make sure that um, their privacy is protected and so I think that's a it's a really big problem if if that data got out and there were certain actors that could use that information in order to take advantage of you. And I think it's, you could take advantage of vulnerable populations by offering them this information. It's kind of like you know what what's going on with social media. It's just like people share their information and then that becomes a commodity that uh, companies like Google and Facebook use in in order to use your information in order to you know manipulate. To market An you, to market you exactly, and so if they can get that information from you and and uh, sequence you um, without your knowledge, you know that would be a yeah you know a, a bad scenario.
1: And when you when someone runs this report, do they need a qualified person to read it, or does the report come out that basically just summarizes it from the company that did the the test that says? here's where your variants are and here's what it means. And you, you're more likely for this or less likely for that. Or does someone have to interpret that
0: data? Yeah. So it's kind of like people have done ancestry and 23 and me, a lot of that information is just kind of uh, stock information that says, well, you've got variants that are consistent with an increased risk, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's diagnostic and that you're going to die from a heart attack and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do is, um, is we provide some level of, of um, interpretation. So when, when we have a client and I have to go through um, our clients, I call them up and then we go over it with them together. And we go over each of their risks and how that might um, influence their, how, how it might have influenced their uh, symptoms and their adverse reaction. Now, if we find out that there are some other things that are not part of what we see on their, on their, um, their adverse reaction. We have an, an ethical obligation. I have an ethical obligation to share that information with the person. So if I see some pathogenic variants, then we're going to have to go into a counseling uh, scenario where um, they may have to work this information in together with their their uh, care provider into their care plan. Um, you know. So that's just something that, but that again, doctors are right now are not used to under, dealing with and are understanding polygenic risk scores. So it's kind of, we first have to kind of educate the doctors in order to understand, well, how could we use this information to work it into somebody's care plan? Yeah. So, definitely. but we, that's something that we do here. If we do sequencing for someone, um, not only are we able to use that information to, to bolster their legal case, But um, we're also able to then provide them information to help them get better, to Mm. help them work that into their care plan.
1: That's so cool. It's such a great service. Are we still doing, speaking of that, are we still doing the clinical trial where people can go into it and become part of the the data collection mm-hmm. process
0: yeah how so all of this that? data comes from the clinical trial
1: yeah how, how would someone if they're it should what what would make them want to go into the clinical trial in other words who qualifies and how would they find
0: that well they would we we've aligned the clinical trial criteria inclusion criteria to align with what the US Court of Federal claims allows for for filing a vaccine injury so they have to have reported it right after the vaccine, within 30 days. They'd have to have ongoing serious symptoms that last six months. And they couldn't have a prior their, their prior history in the past three years would have to be showing that, that they didn't have this uh, ahead of time. So if, if they qualify for that, then that means that they're a good candidate for the Vaccine Injury Court, which means all of their legal fees will be paid for. If they want to file a claim, we will handle that. And on our own we will file it for them and if they get a settlement then they get to keep it all we don't take any of any, any contingency on that and all of the fees from the from the the attorney's fees are paid for by the court directly so then we we invest in when we see individuals who might be good candidates for the study is we fund the genetics side of that because we want to provide the, the most and as far as I know, we're the only firm that does this, is we want to provide the best information to the court so that they can make a decision. Was this person injured by a vaccine? And so we have to be able to connect the dots for the court. That's an expense we're willing to to take on. So hopefully it'll translate into improving the person, not only give them a better case, but also improve their, their therapy and their, their outcome.
1: Yeah. And if someone were interested, they, they just have those three criteria that you mentioned about, you know, it happened within 30 days and it's serious or significant and it's been going on six months or longer. How would they go about finding the study to take a next step? Would they contact you or is there a link that they go to? Well, they could do that.
0: They could go to our our, um, Medical Science Division webpage at Ramos Law, they can go. We're registered under all. All clinical trials are registered in clinicaltrials.gov. So if they if they look under national adverse, you know, national uh, vaccine adverse reaction database, something like that, um, they they'll find the study there, and then they can contact me through through that, or just going to the Ramos you know, Ramos Law.
1: Yeah. So if they go to Ramoslaw.com, you go to Medical Sciences, Dr. Don Cooper. Also, if anyone is interested, our phone number is 303 733 6353 You can reach Dr. Cooper from that way as well from uh, from our side of things. So Dr. Cooper, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, is there any last words of wisdom that you might have for for people if they're wondering about any of this, whether it's, should I get the next vaccine? I don't know now, should I go get this sequencing done? Should I, you know, what should I do? If this raised more questions, is there a next step that they can take to learn more at all?
0: Well, I think it's it's hard. These are really difficult questions, and mainly because of the amount of disinformation there is. It's hard to know when you look at the internet, what's real and what's not, Mm -hmm. and people have, uh, all sorts of, of stories about how they've taken the vaccine and, and it's devastated their lives and other people are, are saying, no, that doesn't exist, it's hard to know what's real and what's not real. Mm-hmm. And so my, my thinking is that the more objective um, data and information you can get, if you know you have certain risk factors, if you know that you have you have to balance the, the risk factors of, of, let's say, COVID. Um, what are the chances you're going to end up in the hospital? You know, if you're overweight male over the age of 60, you know, your chances of, of having a serious um, out, outcome, serious a negative outcome for COVID is probably pretty high, balance that with the, the vaccine. It's hard to know right now. Hmm. We, we simply don't have enough information in order to tell the person, well, you're more likely, it'd probably be better to nudge this way or that way. And I know it's really hard for, ki- for, for uh, families talking about their kids. We know that for kids though, the the chances of you having a serious reaction of a child having a serious reaction let's say a child under 16 having a serious reaction to COVID is pretty small it's pretty remote so um you know i'm not going to say whether or not you should or you shouldn't give your kids the the vaccine but that's something you really should uh, you know read the medical journals Things like that, you have yeah. to kind of make a decision about, about that. And what about,
1: so now I have another question. Yeah. I, I promised that was going to be the last one, yeah. but here we go. Um, if we hear we're bombarded on TV or radio with different kinds of vaccines to where now there's something along the lines of 73 vaccines, is there any cumulative effect of having this plus this plus this plus this plus this, plus this on the immune system that would trigger this thing uh, that we've been talking about, right, the genetic variants, or would each one have its own individual assay that could create an, Im- an immunologic or inflamm- inflammatory response?
0: Yeah. So this is all a new frontier. I mean, just the very concept um, that that a person's background geno- genetics can influence their response to a vaccine is novel and and not really researched. Got it knowing a combinatorial the, the next question of combinatorial effects of well what types of individuals what types of risk factors what types of you know clusters of genes would lead to a negative outcome for this vaccine or this vaccine i i think that i'm less i'm i'm, I'm less likely to to say that it's the constituents of the vaccine itself where in the past they've talked about things like thimerosal and um, other components I'm less likely to be interested in that as a mechanism that in in more interested in how effective is this vaccine at activating a person's immune system. Got and it. the the issue is the immune system is incredibly complicated. And and we know this from from autoimmune disorders. So people can just out of the blue develop an autoimmune condition get neuropathies and arthritis things like that, they can have genetic risks for that. But um, the immune system can cause, uh, you can get activation to your normal constituent proteins. And if, if your immune system is capable of turning on you, and we don't understand what's causing that, and you're giving somebody something that turns that system on, you kind of have to ask yourself, does this person have a risk for an autoimmune vulnerability? And we, if we crank up their immune system, are we gonna give them an autoimmune dis- disorder? Are we gonna increase the risk, or are we gonna push them over into rheumatoid arthritis and make it worse? These are the kind of questions that, these are scientific questions that we should be taking, we should be dedicating money to the NIH they should be asking these questions. There should be money, apportioned. we're self-funding this study. We're not getting this from, from the NIH. There's no entity that's funding our, our study here. Um, so I think more research and more, more money needs to be apportioned to understanding the very questions that you're asking is how many, is there an effect of having multiple vaccines? Is it, is it or is it just immune system activation in general? Um, so these are all good questions. Man, what a fascinating conversation. I know
1: the people watching, listening, they are gonna to wanna to share this with someone because it's, it affects every single one of us. Every one of us is made up of these genes and so many people have, they have to answer these questions about vaccines and other things. If you have listened to this and you found it um, compelling, please, Think about it. Do what's best for yourself and your family and also share this information with people. You might wanna look at getting a genetic test. You might want, there's so many things. At the end of the day, take care of yourself because if you'll take care of yourself, then like Dr. Don, you can make a difference too. So Dr. Don, thank you for coming today again. Mm -hmm. I think this is our third or fourth time together and we got lots more of these planned through the med science division. And for those of you watching and listening, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, Please enjoy and please take care. And remember, you too can make a difference.